Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, your no-hype resource for all things crypto. I'm your host, Laura Shin, a journalist with over two decades of experience. I started covering crypto six years ago, and as a senior editor at Forbes, was the first mainstream media reporter to cover cryptocurrency full-time. This is the August 3rd, 2021 episode of Unchained. My book, The Cryptopians, Idealism, Greed, Lies, and the Making of the First Big Cryptocurrency Craze, is available for pre-order on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Bookshop, or any of your favorite bookstores. Go to bit.ly slash cryptopians. That's B-I-T dot L-Y slash C-R-Y-P-T-O-P-I-A-N-S and pre-order today. The Crypto.com app lets you buy, earn, and spend crypto all in one place. Earn up to 8.5% interest on your Bitcoin and 14% interest on your stablecoins. Paid weekly. Download the Crypto.com app and get $25 with the code Laura. The link is in the description. Tezos is smart money that's redefining what it means to hold and exchange value in a digitally connected world. Discover how people are reimagining the world around you on Tezos. Conjure brings any asset you want onto Ethereum by allowing for users to create synthetic assets which track other markets. With zero interest loans and unlimited assets, it's helping DeFi to consume TradFi. That's C-O-N-J-U-R-E dot finance. Check it out. Today's guests are CFTC Commissioners Dan Berkovitz and Brian Quintens. Welcome, Commissioners Berkovitz and Quintens. Thanks, Laura. Thank Great you, to be Laura. with you. Pleasure to be here. Let's start with each of you giving your background, including your experience with and knowledge of crypto. And Commissioner Berkovitz, why don't we start with you? Thank you, Laura. Uh, my involvement in uh, commodity markets and things commodities uh, started when I was counsel to the Senate Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations. Uh, this was in the 2000s, and at that time, there was a lot of volatility and things going on in the energy markets uh, and energy commodity markets, oil, natural gas, uh, that uh, Senator I worked for, Senator Carl Levin, uh, was interested in getting to the bottom of. There was a lot of price volatility, and oil prices ended up peaking at $147 a barrel in 2008. Um, after I worked for the Senate, I had the uh, privilege of being general counsel of the Commodity Futures Trading Commission uh, during the Dodd-Frank years, when the Dodd-Frank Act was passed by the Congress, regulating the swaps markets. And uh, the next several years, the CFTC uh, passed many regulations implementing that law. I was then in private practice uh, for a number of years. Uh, and in 2018, uh, I had the privilege of uh, being appointed by the president uh, to one of the uh, seats on the CFTC. Uh, I was appointed by President Trump as one of the Democratic commissioners on the CFTC. Uh, Cryptocurrency has been um, an an increasing field uh, since the early 2010s is when I think I I became first uh, aware of it. But in the last few years, there's been a a huge explosion of interest and breadth in these markets. And uh, eager to talk about those today. Thank you. And Commissioner Quintens? 
Yeah, thanks, Lois. It's great to be with you. Always great to be with uh, my fellow commissioner, esteemed colleague, uh, Dan Berkovitz. Uh, I don't have nearly uh, the distinguished background that Dan does, and I mean that very seriously. He's a brilliant lawyer and, and, uh, and a wonderful addition to the commission since I've been there. Um, uh, and I'm not an attorney, and uh, that's actually, I think, um, uh, more rare uh, than, than I would like it, but certainly um, uh, more rare than uh, has been the case that you might expect for a markets regulator uh, over the last number of years. I started off my career on Capitol Hill uh, and worked for a member of Congress from Columbus, Ohio, where I'm from originally for about six and a half years, and then decided to career switch and uh, got an MBA and decided to go into the markets, uh, where I joined an investment firm that was focused on the banking sector during the financial crisis. So it was kind of trial by fire, you know, right off the bat. Uh, but I, uh, I I learned how to, to the best that I could, and I think to the best that anyone can, uh, evaluate some of the largest and most complex financial institutions in the world. Um, uh, while that was going on, I did uh, see the evolution of cryptocurrencies. Um, I saw them, you know, come into the marketplace in, in, the, in the early 2010s. I think it's um, an, an important point to note that they did come uh, into the marketplace uh, on the heels of the financial crisis, uh, given the centralization uh, you know, of, of that, of the, uh, the stresses in the marketplace, you know, that led to that crisis. Um, following my time at the uh, investment firm, I formed my own investment management company where I was involved in trading commodity derivatives uh, on behalf of clients. And I was uh, uh, interviewed and asked to join the commission in 2015, uh, was nominated by both President Obama and by President Trump, uh, and ultimately joined the commission in August of 2017. The second part, it was about cryptocurrencies, I think, from the commission's perspective. When I was preparing for this role uh, in 2015, 2016, obviously, I had a familiarity with, with Bitcoin and some of the developments in crypto. But um, it wasn't really front and center. I think Dodd-Frank was front and center in terms of the uh, how the CFTC was addressing, uh, implementing rules to address the last crisis. But very quickly after I joined the commission, we were presented uh, with uh, two exchanges that wanted to list Bitcoin futures contracts. And I think that put the agency head first and, and front and center uh, in the cryptocurrency environment. Yeah. And to your point earlier about how Bitcoin was born during the financial crisis, famously, the genesis block of the Bitcoin blockchain does reference a headline from the Times of London um, about a third bank bailout. So um, clearly, you know, that was on Satoshi's mind. Um, so for the rest of the conversation, let's just make sure that all the listeners um, have the lay of the land here. Um, can one of you describe what it is that the CFTC's duties are when it comes to crypto or, or what its purview is? And um, maybe we'll start with you, Commissioner Quintens. Sure. So, so the CFTC has a very broad authority uh, over derivatives products, um, de derivatives on, uh, on commodities, uh, on uh, broad-based securities. Uh, and, you know, the, the evolution of the markets um, that we regulate really formed in the 1800s uh, with, and was formed without regulation. And it was centered around uh, hedging activity and risk transfer activity. And the, the, the core of those markets were the agricultural markets. They were uh, corn, wheat, soybeans. Uh, and, and as um, uh, risk management tools like futures contracts 
uh, evolved to allow uh, the participants in those markets, the growers, the producers, the processors, to trade off their risks so that they wouldn't go under if they had a bad crop or if the prices inflated way too much for them to afford and not risk manage their business. Um, Eventually, the federal government decided to get more involved in regulating uh, how those contracts were listed, uh, who and how uh, who could participate and how they could participate. And ultimately, in the 1970s, the CFTC was created uh, to supervise derivatives markets activity. As, it, as our authorities relate more directly to uh, crypto uh, assets themselves, we do have very broad-based um, anti-fraud and anti-manipulation authority over commodity transactions uh, generally. I think we usually try to exercise that authority in very limited circumstances where we see overt fraud or where we see a, um, a significant amount of manipulation that is, mo- that is very directly tied to uh, the futures contracts and the derivatives markets that we regulate upon which risk managers really rely. And Commissioner Berkowitz? Thank you, Laura. And I, I would agree with uh, everything that uh, Commissioner Quintens, uh, he's, Commissioner uh, provided a, an excellent summary of the evolution of, of the commodity markets and, and the reason for their existence. So I just want to put up a, a finer point on, on several of the uh, things that Commissioner Quintens mentioned. First, as, as the markets evolved from agricultural commodities, uh, which they were for, for, from the late 19th century until basically around the 1970s, but in the 1970s with uh, the, the oil embargo and, and coming off the gold standard, they're developed uh, financial commodities. And so a commodity doesn't have to be a, a, a tangible commodity such as gold or oil or wheat or corn. A commodity under the 1974 law, which created the CFTC, can be an intangible. It can be an interest rate. Uh, it, it can be a stock index or it can be a cryptocurrency. A commodity un, under the Commodity Exchange Act is basically anything you can have a futures contract on currently or, or potentially in the future. So we, we've had several uh, test cases recently about cryptocurrency, and there's futures contracts on Bitcoin. Uh, so cryptocurrency, therefore, is a commodity. Now, excluded from our jurisdiction as commodities is securities. So the SEC has jurisdiction over securities, and we have jurisdiction over commodities. But commodities, a very broad category, can be tangible or, or intangible. The instruments involving commodities that we specifically regulate uh, are futures. Uh, contracts for future delivery, their swaps, and their options on commodities. So all of those instruments have to be traded on regulated exchanges. Uh, can be For a futures contract, it has to be on what we call a designated contract market, but that's basically a futures exchange. Swaps uh, have to be traded either on a swap execution facility or a designated uh, contract market if they reach a sufficient uh, amount of liquidity in, 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 in the market. If you're a retail person, you have to trade a swap on a futures exchange. Basically, that's the that's the only place a, a retail person uh, could could be able to trade a swap. And as Commissioner uh, Quintens mentioned, in addition to our regulatory authority, we regulate these facilities for the trading of futures, or we regulate the trading of swaps. We regulated swaps or inter- intermediaries such as big banks who are swap dealers. Um, we also have anti-fraud and anti-manipulation authority. We can prosecute persons who commit fraud or manipulation in the spot or cash market uh, on, on any exchange. Even if we don't regulate a spot exchange, 
um, we can um, uh, prosecute uh, persons who, who manipulate those markets. So we have both regulatory jurisdiction over derivative uh, execution facilities, um, how they're executed, but we also have uh, this anti-fraud and anti-manipulation authority over the commodity transactions themselves. And so I'm glad that you brought up the SEC because I believe that in the crypto space, the SEC right now, and for a while actually, has been kind of the big regulator that everybody talks about. Um, and as you mentioned, kind of what tends to not fall in the SEC's bucket will fall into the CFTC's. And there was a period uh, when, and this is just one example where, for instance, people were concerned that Ether could be a security because of how it was sold in a crowd sale. But eventually the SEC said it was not. Later, the CFTC also said that it was a commodity. And I think people are curious um, how that decision making happened at that time. Is that something that the two agencies discussed actively together to make the determination together? And it just in general, how do the CFTC and the SEC work when it comes to matters involving crypto? Yeah, I'll, I'll take a first stab at that, um, Dan. I, you know, I think, um, yes, there is a lot of interaction between the agencies when it comes to uh, the legal status of any specific product. I think we see that on the enforcement side. If we see fraud um, of, uh, you know, around a particular crypto asset, the agencies have to make a determination about which agency has authority, and then they look at the specifics of that asset to make that determination so that the right appropriate agency takes the lead. I, I do think I wasn't involved in any discussions between the agencies around the status of Bitcoin or Ether and whether or not they were securities. But the, the chair of the CFTC at the time, Heath Harbert, did come out and say it was a commodity. Uh, I think that implied that Ether was not a security and that was and that it was within the CFTC's jurisdiction should futures contracts or derivatives contracts be listed upon it. But I do think that there should be more transparency around uh, those kinds of decisions. There should be more um, uh, uh, official analysis that's provided to the public. I think that the um, the limbo that a lot of the community finds themselves in is not productive to innovation. And I think that there is a very clear path forward towards providing that clarity. Um, and I would hope that uh, our counterparts at the SEC uh, seriously consider that. And, and when you say that, what would be that clear path forward? Well, I think Hester Peirce's safe harbor proposal is a brilliant proposal. I think there is a there is an opinion within the CFTC that products can evolve from an initial securities offering uh, into into a commodity. They can become commoditized. Uh, through, um, uh, you know, widespread acceptance and utility that moves, moves something beyond, you know, the ownership and control, uh, you know, of a common enterprise. And I think that a, a safe harbor like proposal can take advantage of that, uh, of that legal theory, um, and not unduly limit the ability of entrepreneurs and innovators, uh, to, you know, to, to take advantage of the blockchain space and the development and the crypto assets. I, I think the, the challenge is that if you, you know, rigidly applied securities laws to crypto assets that started off as securities, you may prevent them from evolving into commodities. So some level of a safe harbor, I think, makes a lot of sense. Uh, and uh, besides Commissioner Peirce, I've, I've yet to hear a lot of um, a lot of additional support uh, you know, from the SEC on that kind of concept. But I think it's an important one. 
And Commissioner Berkovitz, what do you think of the safe harbor proposal? Well, I think uh, we we actually have an excellent working relationship with the the SEC, um, and and that's improved over the years, and and, and a large amount of improvements due to Commissioner Quintanz. I mean, Commissioner Quintanz has been a a point person for us uh, on our relations with the SEC and and, uh, helping um, along with uh, the chairman of the the, uh, CFTC and the chairman of the SEC working together. And so our relations are very good. But Fundamentally, each agency, in the end, we, we will consult and we will uh, discuss these issues. But fundamentally, each agency is charged by Congress with protecting the markets under its jurisdiction. So, in terms of what is a security or what is a commodity, uh, our lawyers will discuss with their lawyers, and 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 we ha- we have discussions. But at the end of the day, it's up to each agency to decide what's what's in its jurisdiction and and enforce the laws that it's that it's charged with enforcing. So, the SEC will um, determine what's a security at the, at the end of the day. And if it's a security, it's in, in, in their jurisdiction. I totally uh, agree that uh, with what uh, Commissioner Quintan said about a, a, an instrument can change uh, its, its nature depending on the use as, as it evolves. Uh, so in, in terms of really whether uh, the SEC should grant a safe harbor or something in, in terms of securities law, I mean, I, I would defer to the SEC on that because they're really primarily uh, uh, charged with enforcing the securities laws. I mean, once it comes over on the commodity side, you know, we, we, have our, we have our legal requirements. And uh, if, if people believe that there's a, a, a way that uh, the current regulations uh, may or may not uh, be, be suited to their particular structure, um, I'm, people come in and, and uh, as, as they typically do and say, well, here's why the CFTC's regulations in our specific case should not apply, and we'll 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 listen to their arguments and make a determination of potentially why well, we can do various things. We can grant in some instances what we call no action relief on on a trial basis. Say, okay, if you can't comply this way, you can comply that way, and we'll have a number of conditions and say, okay, if you if you can't meet the regulatory requirement or it's inappropriate for you to meet it by doing X Y Z. We'll allow you to do ABC, uh, provided you do DE and F also, and give us assurance that the intent of the regulation is being met. And we, you know, we issue, let's say, 100 something no action letters a year uh, with various uh, entities coming in, or potentially people can petition for a change in rulemaking, which admittedly is harder. So we, we, we do have some flexibility, uh, and we exercise that flexibility, um, you know, numerous times each year. So it, it's not, uh, it's not our regulatory structure is not so rigid that we demand everybody do everything in a, in a cookie cutter approach. Uh, at this point, maybe it's perhaps worthwhile to mention overarching our philosophy, our regulatory philosophy is, is what we call principles based. The statute says here are the principles and here are the standards that, that we expect you CFTC to hold the market participants to. And it's called principles based regulation. The statute for example, a futures exchange, there's, uh, I think it's about 20 what we call core principles. Uh, the futures exchange, it has to be able to uh, ensure that there's not manipulation. You have to post the prices. You have to ensure the financial integrity of transactions. You have to be able to operate your facility and have redundancy. So if there's a storm and there's a, an outage or a disruption, you can continue operations. You have to be secure against cyber threats. These general general objectives. And we, we fill in a lot of the details on that and say, here's, here's how to do it. 
but fundamentally, you know, there's those 20 principles you have to meet and we give the exchanges considerable leeway and and how and how how they meet it um now there are sometimes we do get very specific it's, it's we say thou must doubt do x in certain circumstances but it's really a principles-based approach so if if entities in the marketplace seeking additional flexibility as to different ways to meet the regulations our system and our regulatory structure can accommodate that um so earlier you talked about how the focus at the cftc has been on fraud and other kinds of obvious bad behavior. There was a civil case that the CFTC brought against BitMEX and its owners. And at the same time, the Department of Justice also brought a criminal case against them for violating and cons- conspiring to violate the Bank Secrecy Act by willfully failing to establish, implement, and maintain an adequate anti-money laundering program. And each count carries a maximum penalty of five years in prison and there are some legal observers who say that these charges are unprecedented since there aren't allegations of specific criminal activity such as fraud or credit card theft or terrorist financing. And they <clears throat> compare this to some cases where banks admitted, uh, such as HSBC, admitted to actual money laundering and the Justice Department did not indict the bank rights officials. So, you know, I think some crypto observers do believe that this case shows a double standard. Uh, what is your take on that? The, the uh, BitMEX case uh, is, is, a, is, a, is being prosecuted by several, several agencies. The CFTC, we have a, a complaint uh, regarding violations of the Commodity Exchange Act, as well as the Bank Secrecy Act, civil violations. So we, we prosecute the civil violations. And, and with respect to BitMEX, um, the complaint lay, lays out a, num- a number of issues of uh, selling uh, um, uh, swaps without registering as a swap execution facility, selling, uh, providing leverage for transactions without registering as a futures commission merchant, believe trading futures contracts without re- uh, registering as a uh, designated contract market or a futures exchange, and violations of the civil violations of the Bank Secrecy Act. And so, I, I, we we laid out the facts in the in the, in the complaint. And uh, obviously, a, a stand by the complaint that, that, that we issued as, as a well-founded complaint. Uh, in terms of the criminal prosecution, that's up to the, really the Department of Justice and, and whether it meets the standards for criminal prosecution. Uh, uh, so, I mean, I, I uh, believe the Department of Justice has an extreme amount of integrity in their, in their prosecutions and, and that it meets the, the appropriate standards for bringing a, a, a criminal prosecution. So there's, there's, um, I believe all, all the, all the actions uh, that, that the federal government in this matter uh, have brought are, are, are well founded. Commissioner Quintens. Yeah, I can't talk about the Bitmex uh, case specifically, um, but I think, I think it's important to, to, to contrast what a centralized, you know, entity that is seeking to list products that are directly in the commission's jurisdiction uh, and, and doing that uh, in a way that uh, contravenes um, or completely ignores our rules for, you know, entities engaged in that kind of behavior uh, with what we're seeing in the DeFi space where, um, where protocols, you know, through decentralization are offering, um, you know, innovation and opportunities Outside of an intermediated, uh, you know, functional marketplace, um, that that is a that is a new paradigm of a market 
that our law and our rules were not designed to comprehend. Um, and so I, 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 th I, I view them uh, as, as somewhat different and uh, maybe we'll you know, explore some of this, but um, uh, I, I think in cases uh, like the one you mentioned, there is a centralized entity that uh, flaunted our rules, benefited themselves in doing so, and uh, I think it's reasonable to expect that in doing in accessing U.S. customers, I think the agency has you know a lot of jurisdiction to bring a case there. And so we will get into DeFi. There's so much to discuss there. But um, before we move on to that, I do want to ask a little bit more about derivatives because uh, that is what was offered on BitMEX, and it's just one of the most popular areas of crypto, and also. Uh, it's a very popular financial instrument in the traditional financial world. And um, in the U.S., derivatives are regulated by the CFTC, but there's no formal regulatory framework for crypto derivatives exchanges. So when could we expect such rules and regulations from the CFTC and what would that framework look like? So I'm, I, uh, I, I guess when you say there's no formal you know, regime or regulation for crypto derivatives exchanges, I don't think our rules necessarily... Uh, look at the products as opposed to, you know, whether or not they are derivatives. You know, just like there's no, you know, agriculture derivative specific, um, you know, exchange, you know, set of rules or, or energy derivative specific set of rules. There are, you know, derivative exchange sets of rules that, you know, uh, centralized entities looking to offer contracts, derivatives contracts for trading uh, you know, are captured by. Yeah, no, I, I, I would add that we we do have we do have uh, licensed facilities trading crypto products. We we have um, we have futures contracts on Bitcoin trading uh, on, on a number of licensed exchanges, um, and, and we have event contracts uh, trading uh, on on exchanges. Uh, so we we do have uh, we do have crypto products trading on on licensed licensed facilities. Okay, so maybe it's just a certain types of crypto derivatives are uh, that are popular, uh, not in the U.S. are maybe not uh, ones that would be allowed in the current framework. The derivatives, if, if you want to list a type of um, contract or derivative, if you want to list a particular derivative, you have a license to trade derivatives. You submit what we call a product certification saying we want to trade this product and there are standards for, for products traded on our facilities um, that the exchange will submit a, a product certification um, to the CFTC. And they'll, they'll either they'll either quote what we call self-certify and say this meets all your regulatory requirements or they'll say, you know, uh, this is a, a new, a different type of product. We'd like you to actually approve this product uh, bef before we list it. So they can either self-certify or ask us to uh, approve the product. So if you're a licensed, uh, licensed futures exchange or, or a swap execution facility and you want to trade a, a novel type of crypto product that nobody else is trading, um, you can, you know, you, you apply for a product certification. Um, now, if, if you're not approved as a licensed exchange and you want to trade that product in the U.S., you have to get approval to be a licensed exchange. So the first step is becoming an approved exchange. But once you're an approved exchange, uh, there's uh, and, and you want to do a new product. Uh, it's it's a uh, it's a product approval process. And, and so well, let me uh, moment, one of the 
Oh, uh-huh. no, I'm sorry. I was just going to I was just going to try to add to that and maybe take a, a step back, which is that I think a lot of the conversation around crypto derivatives um, overseas uh, really involves leverage uh, and leverage considerations and, and how much leverage uh, different exchanges and different, you know, uh, different exchanges can offer and different clients can get. Um, and I think we, we saw recently uh, an exchange talk about that and, and decide to start to self-limit the amount of leverage it was going to, going to provide. It, you know, as, as we look back in the U.S. at the evolution of the derivatives markets, um, there, there was a reason why, given the technology available at the time, we had intermediaries develop, which was because it made no sense from a risk management perspective to, um, you know, pre-purchase or or completely pre-sell a, a commodity because then it's just a pre-sale. That's not a risk management feature. Risk management feature would, you know, um, allow for some limited amount of risk to be taken with the cash flows, you know, on top of that. So, you know, a, a derivatives contract could have... Um, you know, a, a 10% amount of margin that you'd have to put up, you know, as, uh, as, as collateral, basically, um, that, that shows you're going to make good on the payments uh, of that contract. Um, because of the involvement of leverage in risk management and in futures contracts, we have, you know, clearinghouses that developed to trade, to take both sides, you know, of a trade so that if one party defaulted, the clearinghouse could stand in the middle and make sure the other party was made good uh, so that their risk management process wasn't impeded. And then as, you know, futures contracts um, proliferated and expanded to, um, you know, more potential clients, we have intermediaries that come in to service those clients and provide an extra layer of protection for the clearinghouses, so that uh, you know there's extra margin put into the to the uh, the what we call FCMs, but think of them as kind of commodity derivative brokers, and then the FCMs put an extra capital to the clearinghouses, so that you know if there's a waterfall effect, hopefully there's a set of resources there to ensure that contracts can continue to be made whole from the defaulting party. So because of that, the agency doesn't necessarily approve margin models, but has a set of standards by which it looks at margin models for exchanges that needs to meet a certain set of mathematical criteria to try to prevent defaults from occurring. And I think some of those rules would would probably preclude the extremes amount of leverage, extreme amount of leverage that we see uh, overseas that when offered to U.S. clients would conflict with our regulations. And, and if I if I could just just add, add again another point on this, um, historically, we have seen with retail currency transactions, the predecessor for the reason we're so concerned about it, or one of the reasons we're so concerned about these leveraged transactions is with respect to foreign currency, the leveraged foreign currency transactions, now not preceding you know, cryptocurrency, is one of the highest, most the most fraud prone areas in our jurisdiction. It's, it's a, a lot of fraud, um, is a, ha, has occurred in, in the retail, uh, foreign currency space. And because of that, Congress specifically gave the CFTC jurisdiction over these leveraged retail foreign currency transactions. And then added to that in the Dodd-Frank Act, this same jurisdiction over retail commodity transactions. It's selling these retail products. Products to retail consumers with high amounts of leverage, you put a thousand dollars 
down, you can get a hundred thousand dollars worth of exposure at a hundred to one leverage or something like that. This was an area of where a lot of a lot of retail people you know, were, were not sophisticated, and they're promised a great opportunity to get get rich very quickly. So historically, I'm not. I mean, there's obviously many many um, upstanding actors in the space, but historically, it's been an area rife with fraud. So as we see the, see it move into the cryptocurrency space, that that that's of concern to us. Yeah, and just to be clear for listeners, the two exchanges that did limit their leverage recently were FTX and Binance, um, but both said that uh, very, very, very few customers ever used more than 20x leverage. So the max now is 20x on both exchanges. Um, okay, so in a moment, we're going to talk about DeFi and how that relates to the CFTC's purview. But first, a quick word from the sponsors who make this show possible. Do you want to trade gold, currencies, or even bananas on Ethereum? Conjure opens access to the global financial market for Ethereum by allowing for permissionless, user-created synthetic assets. Conjure allows you to create, borrow, and trade synthetic assets which track the value for any conceivable asset, real or abstract, using any price feed you want. Asset creators are able to earn fees on every mint and scale revenue with direct use for their assets. Synths are minted by providing Ether to collateralize the asset as 0% interest loans. Contra's helping to bring TradFi to DeFi and turn Ethereum into the real global financial settlement layer. Trade synths for USD, gold, BTC, or make your own. So why not check out conjure.finance and see what's possible. Tezos lets you easily exchange smart money throughout our digital world. A self-upgradable blockchain with a proven track record, Tezos seamlessly adopts tomorrow's innovations without network disruptions today. Because of this adaptability, engineers, conservationists, entrepreneurs, collectors, game developers, and artists from around the world are building, creating, and using Tezos every day. Discover how people are reimagining the world around you on Tezos. With over 10 million users, Crypto.com is the easiest place to buy and sell over 90 cryptocurrencies. Download the Crypto.com app now and get $25 with the code LAURA. If you're a hodler, Crypto.com Earn pays industry-leading interest rates on over 30 coins, including Bitcoin, at up to 8.5% interest and up to 14% interest on your stablecoins. When it's time to spend your crypto, nothing beats the Crypto.com Visa card which pays you up to 8% back instantly and gives you 100% rebate for your Netflix, Spotify, and Amazon Prime subscriptions. There is no annual or monthly fees to worry about. Download the Crypto.com app and get $25 when using the code LAURA, L-A-U-R-A. The link is in the description. Back to my conversation with CFTC commissioners Dan Berkovitz and Brian Quintens. So the CFTC regulations are almost based on a policy of mandatory intermediation in a way. And um, what that means is that for certain transactions falling into certain categories, they're required to take place only on a CFTC-regulated exchange, which you know basically forces this intermediation, which is obviously antithetical to DeFi. So DeFi transactions um, can kind of get similar results to some commodities transactions. For instance, you can create a collateralized debt position on MakerDAO and use that to mint DAI, which is a stable coin pegged to the US dollar, 
which you can then use to buy more Ether, which is basically providing yourself more leverage. Um, but the, this happens through these peer-to-peer protocols. And um, so there's no kind of like traditional counterparty that, you know, as, as you would traditionally define it. And so some of these CFTC regulations in a way are, you know, they're, they're made for a, a different world than, than DeFi. And I wanted to get your thoughts on how the CFTC would regulate this type of activity, if at all. Uh, let, me, let me start off on, on this one. Um, so our regulations, I think it's, it's, it's fair to say, and it's accurate to say that our regulations really are based on an intermediation model. They don't necessarily mandate it in every instance, but when all these regulations were being written, they were based on exchange-traded models or broker-intermediated models. And so the, many of the regulations are, are, are centered around and assume the presence of, of intermediaries. Ultimately, in many of these DeFi applications, um, they're very innovative. Uh, they uh, approach the market in a different way, say maybe we, we, we don't need the intermediaries for everything that they're doing. And there, there's additional friction and, and cost, and we could be more efficient and speedier uh, without the intermediaries. And, and they accomplish that in, in a number of respects. So the difficulty and the challenge is when you take out an intermediary from some of the functions in a regulatory system that presupposes their existence, how, how do those two systems mesh? And that, that's, that's, that's a question um, that really DeFi poses to the regulators and to the marketplace. That doesn't mean that they're, that uh, you could totally do without all intermediation or the functions that the intermediaries do in, in terms of in, in terms of what they do. For example, intermediaries, the 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 exchanges, not only um, match up parties, which uh, in a DeFi protocol you can do without the exchange, but they also have a surveillance obligation and an affirmative obligation to to make sure that the markets are free from fraud or or, or manipulation. They also uh, basically, a clearinghouse in a futures model, a clearinghouse stand behind, stands behind the trade. So if one party somehow defaults, then um, the clearinghouse will make it up. Now, you could say in the DeFi protocol, well, there's an automatic liquidity provider that uh, will li- liquidate the contracts before you get to default. And that, and that may be. And, and if you don't need a clearinghouse, um, that, that's an interesting uh, development that you know, we, we certainly could look at. So there's some functions I think you could do uh, a better uh, uh, without an intermediary, but some an intermedi- intermediary may be necessary. And the question is, can you do it totally without intermediaries? Uh, many of the um, uh, ensuring the integrity of the code, uh, explaining to the retail persons how this system works. Uh, there's, it's not everybody can go on and, and, and all of a sudden analyze the code and figure out that, that the code is appropriate. And we have presumably if there's retail people on there, they'll need somebody to say, yeah, this is a good code. Yes, you can trust the system. So uh, I think we do we do have a challenge with DeFi in, in terms of how to how to fit this new technology within our within the regulatory structure. But as currently exists, the regulatory structure does impose obligations, not just on the intermediaries, but on the market participants, certain obligations on the market participants themselves. So uh, taking out the intermediaries doesn't necessarily take out all the regulations that might apply to a trade in, in, in a derivative. Uh, so it, pe- persons operating platforms have to consider, or uh, is they, even the terminology operating platforms, uh, persons developing platforms <laughs> or developing technologies may want to, cons- you know, will need to consider all, all of that. 
And at the moment, with the way that many of these DeFi projects are set up, who do you think is a natural entity for you to regulate or for the CFTC in general to regulate? Well, that's a great, that's a great question. Um, and, and so one, one, one has to look at a number of factors and, and to see whether there is actual uh, uh, the sufficient indicia of control or intermediation of fi- who's financing it, who's making the decisions. Um, is, is somebody benefiting by it, by, by financial, uh, financially? Is there really an organization behind this? Uh, how, how decentralized or centralized is it? And it can be very factual specific and it's an evolving area. So we're, we're, uh, looking carefully at, at a number of these things. It's, it's different, different facilities uh, and different protocols seem to have different degrees of centralization or decentralization. And I think it's a, it's a, some of these present a, a very interesting questions for us. And earlier when you said that you're, you, you also regulate the market participants, does that mean that the CFTC would consider enforcement actions well, against market participants? Well, tr- tr- tradi- traditionally, and this is one benefit of inter- intermediation, traditionally, um, in, in, and if you've seen this in our, our enforcement actions uh, to, to date in, in the space where we have gone after, uh, uh, we have filed complaints and then taken enforcement actions against if somebody is uh, operating an exchange and it's not registered um, or basically as a broker, as a futures commission merchant without being registered, our enforcement actions have been directed against those persons, not against the transactions that have taken place on an unregistered facility, but a transaction taken, a futures transaction that's not taken uh, place, does not take place on a futures exchange is unlawful under the Commodity Exchange Act. But we haven't gone after the end users. We haven't gone after the market participants traditionally. Uh, so our focus traditionally has been on the, the entities uh, who should have been intermediaries in, in those circumstances. But if, if, for example, let's take oil, oil market. Um, if one were to trade on a DeFi platform, an oil contract, uh, and you might have a market participant uh, who decides, I'd rather trade on an unregulated platform than on a regulated platform, um, you know, that that would present a more difficult question for us, whether, you know, if somebody consciously decides to trade in an unregulated environment to avoid our regulations, then somebody who may, uh, a retail person who who, who may uh, you know, be trade on something that somebody's offered them and they shouldn't have offered them without being unregistered. So uh, that's traditionally how we, we've we've approached enforcement. But um, it doesn't, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll approach each case under the facts and circumstances. Fundamentally, whether or not we take an enforcement action, the contract still is, is, is not a lawful contract under the Commodity Exchange Act. So the, there's a question about the basic enforceability of a contract, let alone whether we take enforcement action against the parties who entered into it. So you're saying like a contract, just a smart contract could be illegal just on its own. Correct. Correct. This- Correct. So that, 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 that raises an interesting, that, that, that's, that's, the the Commodity Exchange Act says uh, that for future contract to be legal, it has to be traded through a regulated exchange. And this question about the legality of essentially futures contracts that are not traded on exchange was was a great uh, source of of debate, and uh, uh, basically it led to the Commodity Futures Modernization Act when the when the Going back history a little ways, but history is instructive. Uh, when the swaps market developed, 
in the 1980s, the question became, well, are swaps, what's the difference between a swap contract and a futures contract? I don't want to go too far down the rabbit hole here, but I, I do want to point out the history on this. And the argument that swaps contracts were no different, or were really futures contracts, really troubled the, troubled the industry in the 1990s. And it really was one of the motivating factors behind the Commodity Futures Modernization Act of 2000, which provided legal certainty that swaps were, were did not have to be traded on futures exchanges. So we had a statute passed by Congress that told the CFTC and the SEC, you can't regulate swaps. They're legal. If they're, if they're not illegal futures contracts, basically. And then that caused a whole bunch of problems in the 2000s. Uh, with the leading to the financial crisis. And so the swaps markets were re, were regulated. They're not futures contracts. Swaps are not futures. But the legal uncertainty over a contract that's essentially a futures contract that's not traded on a futures exchange was, was very, very significant. Financial institutions were very, very concerned about, well, what, what do I have then if I have a futures contract that's not not uh, traded on a futures exchange. So at best, at best, there's legal uncertainty. But I also think there's a strong argument. The Commodity Exchange Act says it shall be unlawful to enter into a contract unless it's on a a futures contract, unless it's on a registered uh, futures exchange. Well, then how does this square? And, and, you know, maybe this is just an opinion, but I think there is a view that software development is like an expression of free speech. And so is that something that you would say can be regulated by the CFTC simply creating a smart contract? Well, the, the, it's not the creation. It's, the, it's the, the development of the software is, is, is one issue. But somebody who enters into a, a, a transaction purporting to be a futures transaction, what is it? Is that a contract? If you're going to call it a smart contract, the question is, if it's, a, if it's purporting to be a futures contract, is it an enforceable contract? What rights do you have if you enter into that to get the money you're promised? It might be just a bunch of code that, that says, here's how this code is going to execute. But if it doesn't execute as it promised, if, if there's you know, some electrical problem or, or, or it's misrepresented or it has some trick in it, or there, there, if, if somehow you don't get the money that you think you're going to get, what can you do now in, in our in our futures world in, in the regulated world you have a, a very very high degree of certainty because there's multiple intermediaries in the regulatory system and there's a legal system backing you up that you are going to get your money uh, it, provided you know you're, you're you're entitled to it because it's a legal contract if you don't have a legal contract you don't you don't have a legal contract now does that mean we're going to prosecute the drafters of the contract those are two separate those are two separate questions, prosecuting the drafters of the contract or the basic legality of the instrument that somebody's purporting to enter into. So apart whether we prosecute people, the contract itself may be, you know, not, not a contract that would be recognized in any court of law as something that could be enforced, which I think would be a problem for people who think that, you know, you may have a high degree of confidence in the code and it may work a lot, but when it doesn't, that's when you need the legal system. That's when you need that assurance. And if somebody, you know, somebody takes it from you, steals it from you, you know, what, what do you have? You have a, a, if it's not a legal contract, if it's not binding. So uh, I think there's issues both for enforceability and there's issues both and there's other issues in the legality of the instrument. 
So, but you said whether or not to prosecute the developer is a separate issue, but is that something that you think is possible? Well, I think we, 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 we have, this is a, again, this is a facts and circumstances uh, situation where it would depend on, on, on the facts and the circumstances of, of what people are doing when they're developing the code. And, and uh, it, it's a highly, highly factual de- factually dependent. Okay, but the way you answer that makes it sound then like, again, you know, as you said earlier, it would be more likely you would go after something more like a fraud type situation. Is that what you were trying to imply tra- tra- there? Tra- traditionally, yes. Traditionally, that's that's what we have done. Correct. So, Commissioner Berkowitz, we've been having this uh, very interesting exchange about what the CFTC does cover in DeFi. And, um, you know, you did say recently in a speech that you felt DeFi does not offer the benefits and protections of traditional markets because of this uh, lack of intermediaries. And then you actually said that you thought DeFi for uh, DeFi markets for derivatives are a bad idea. So does that mean that you think the CFTC should bring enforcement actions to shut down these many different DeFi projects that exist? Or is there some way that participants who would like to register with CFTC uh, could try to do so if, for instance, the Commodity Exchange Act were modified in some fashion? Uh, actually, uh, th- thank you for uh, uh, ask- asking that, Lauren. I just, I just do want want to clarify: unlicensed DeFi is a bad idea. Uh, I didn't say that all DeFi is a bad idea, but unlicensed DeFi, particularly without intermediaries. Is a bad idea, in my opinion. Uh, of course, if uh, DeFi uh, proponents, uh, operators, or entities uh, uh, who, who want uh, DeFi platforms to exist uh, want to come in uh, to the CFTC and say, you know, um, we understand that uh, it's you have to trade uh, futures contracts and, and swaps on re- registered facilities, and we we would like. Our facilities to be in compliance with the atomic, uh, excuse me, the Commodity Exchange Act. Um, um, uh, how, how can we do that? Uh, certainly, um, um, part of our mission is to support uh, uh, responsible innovation and fair competition. We have other missions to uh, prevent systemic risk and to ensure market integrity, but we actually have a statutory responsibility to uh, promote what, responsible innovation and fair competition. So. Innovation such as DeFi, um, uh, as long as it's done responsibly, which uh, I, I mean regulated, um, we ha- we have a statutory obligation uh, to to work uh, to see that that can happen. Fair competition as well. We we want we promote competition amongst not just market participants, but amongst different ways of trading the instruments. But it should be fair competition, and by fair, the regulatory playing field is level. We don't have a one regulated market, another unregulated market. So absolutely, uh, we should work there. There's advantages to DeFi, as I mentioned before. Uh, if if you can conduct, if you have a protocol that ensures uh, some particular uh, event won't happen, that uh, uh, the the contract uh, operates in such a way that uh, uh, the, the uh, person's um, margin has to stay at a certain level, that they have to have a certain amount of collateral. And you can show that this is hardwired into the protocol and that you don't need five people in some surveillance department or five people in some back office somewhere. You can do it by code. Fantastic. Great. You know, we, we, we can, um, we can uh, work to, to accommodate that. Now, as we also talked about, the way the regulations are written, it, it really was written 
in, in terms of a fully intermediated uh, a market. So there may be things that uh, uh, we would have to uh, work on um, uh, to, um, to, to to accomplish that within the current regulatory structure. But I, I believe the way to do it is to engage with us in the dialogue, say, how can we come into compliance? We want to operate a facility. Uh, we, we have all this great innovation. How can we make it work within the regulatory uh, arena? And uh, we'd, we'd be, we'd be uh, you know, w- welcoming of that effort and that initiative and devote resources to, to make it happen. Um, we've uh, uh, very much encouraged innovation in the space. And Commissioner Quintens, we, uh, Commissioner Berkowitz and I have covered a lot of material here, but I did want to also get your opinion, uh, you know, for the way that the, the rules and regulations of the CFTC are structured currently, who do you think is the natural entity to regulate when it comes to many of these DeFi projects? Well, I don't think there is one, and, and I think that's I think that's the challenge. Um, and I think let, let me say that I agree with Commissioner Berkowitz in terms of what the law says and what our regulations say. But I also want to take a step back from my own perspective and my own philosophical perspective and look at first principles, which is, you know, how DeFi uh, and the properties you know that it has and the um, the, the, the freedom and liberty uh, to transact uh, in the financial marketplace, how, how DeFi encourages that and supports that, how that really directly relates to an open and free uh, and transparent financial system. And I think, you know, we talked about how, how the markets evolved over time and how our rules evolved over time to match those in order to ensure the integrity of a transaction so that, you know, leverage defaults didn't cascade through the system, you know, that is a challenge that DeFi is addressing. Uh, it's doing it, though, in an unintermediated way through very transparent code. And if, if we look at, you know, what an ultimate free market, uh, you know, should be, it should be an, it should be an environment where there are very low or zero zero barriers to entry, where there is uh, fierce competition uh, for innovation and to create efficiencies, and where there is open access uh, to be able to either build or take advantage of that value. And those are all the things that we see in the DeFi space. And so, you know, I, I, I think I'm a little reluctant to put the, you know, the, the regulations as we have them today onto the DeFi space and impede what I believe is a very remarkable amount of innovation that has tr- attracted the best and brightest minds and a lot of capital and uh, intellectual property when, you know, most of it is occurring uh, through very transparent code uh, that any individual can audit and that promotes a, a, an, an enormous amount of uh, personal responsibility. When we really start seeing um, the, the, the significant intersection of DeFi and the financial system or DeFi and our legacy, you know, futures and derivative space. And I think we're starting to see some of that, but I think a lot of the innovation is occurring within its own ecosystem in DeFi right now. Um, that's when I think, you know, the CFTC, hopefully we don't wait until then, 
But that's when we really need to take a look at our rule set again. And and Congress needs to take a look at the law and say, is that, you know, products are products and the legal standard for products applies to anything. But we've created a law and a set of regulations around one financial system paradigm. This is a completely new financial system paradigm that does have some risks, but tries to solve, in my view, tries to solve for those risks in a transparent, open way uh, that provides a lot of access and whose principles, I think, match with the foundational principles of this country. The thing that's going to, I think, that's also going to pose a challenge for this space is exactly what Commissioner Berkowitz had said, which is that it is under our law unlawful to enter into, not just offer, but to enter into an off-exchange derivatives contract. And taking the CFTC completely out of this perspective, out of this, out of this for a second, even if the agency did nothing with regards to that kind of activity, I don't think large financial institutions are going to come into the space and engage with those kinds of products because of a fear of potential liability. So, you know, if, if the DeFi space really wants to um, attract institutional activity, that's going to be a problem that we have to kind of work to, to solve to solve for. If, if it wants to, um, if it doesn't care or if certain projects don't care about institutional money or institutional, um, have an institutional focus, then, then, you know, maybe we'll see at what point, given all of the CFTC's responsibilities and given the legacy, you know, hundreds of trillions of dollars of derivative market activity that we do supervise, and where to put DeFi in that priority list, in my opinion, should be fairly low, given what we already oversee and how interconnected that is directly to the food that we eat and the gas that we put in our cars. Um, you know, we'll, we'll see at what point the CFTC ends up taking action. Okay, so it sounds like you're kind of on the side of maybe having Congress update the Commodity Exchange Act or, or just somehow creating some sort of new regulatory regime that makes sense for DeFi. I think that's going to take a long time. I, th- I think uh, Congress, by design, works very slowly unless there is a significant crisis for which it needs to respond. And in that case, you know, I think, um, you know, who, who knows what the, what the what the success is of the ultimate product that's produced. Uh, but my hope would be, as we see the innovation, as we see the access, as we see the transparency. Um, you know, take place in DeFi and realize that a lot of the risks that we are solving for as regulators in the intermediated space are being solved for in the DeFi space uh, already, that there is a rethink of the the Commodity Exchange Act to allow for that activity to either continue to occur uh, on its own or to be brought into the regulated system. But to me, it feels a little early to, you know, to engage uh, in an overly negative way across the space, uh, given the innovation that we see in the principles that apply there. So recently, Uniswap Labs announced that it was removing certain tokens from the interface that this company, the centralized company has created to access the decentralized protocol. And those types of tokens were, for instance, tokenized stocks, mirror stocks, options, and derivatives. And of course, this cause a little uproar on crypto Twitter. And I wondered, do you think that this kind of compliance and, um, you know, uh, basically these types of regulations that, uh, you know, I think you're 
you're both kind of saying in certain regards can be outdated, obviously, for this new model. Do you think that that could drive more DeFi creators and founders to either go the anonymous route or to locate in other jurisdictions, thus taking those jobs to these other economies? I think we want to capture as much innovation within the United States as we can. And I think that uh, hopefully how we apply the law and how we apply our rules allow that innovation to expand at a rapid pace without endangering um, you know, the participants in it. But to your point in your example, I think that gets to some of my questions as I think about this space about what's the decentralized part versus the centralized part. And while I think you said Uniswap Labs delisted certain products, the Uniswap protocol as a decentralized you know, uh, piece of infrastructure, I guess, uh, is still offering those because it's decentralized. To me, that goes to the centralized aspect versus the decentralized aspect and um, the challenge that it's going to be for the, the CFTC to apply its rules to the decentralized area in the first place. But, yeah, let, let me let me just add a, a couple of things. One is, as, as both Brian and I were saying, the, the, the threshold question regarding the legality of the contracts themselves, as, as Brian's noted, and I totally agree, it's going to be a barrier to institutional participation in these markets. So um, whatever level of activity there may or may not be, the, the purpose of the financial system is not just to trade crypto assets. The purpose of the financial system is to provide methods for raising capital for American businesses and for risk management for American businesses and consumers. So, so that businesses can manage the risks of, 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 of their, their, uh, their commercial activities. So Americans can have retirement and, and protect their, you know, their assets or grow their assets and protect them in retirement. And really to have a, a, a if, if for DeFi to be a part of the mainstream uh, uh, financial system um, and, 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 and uh, say mainstream I and mean, fulfill those functions, um, it, institutional participation, the liquidity that institutions, that the large financial institutions is going to be critical. And for American businesses, it's going to be absolutely critical to enter into contracts. So they're certain are, 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 are legal or not. There's not legal question to. So I, I think the, the legality question, um, uh, until that's addressed somehow, it's going to be extraordinarily difficult for this industry to grow. My belief is that the ones who are successful at, at addressing the legal issues and bringing DeFi into the regulatory sphere, rather than the ones who are trying to figure out which best offshore jurisdiction to go to to make the most money, are going to be the ones that succeed in the United States with the largest financial system and the largest market in the world. We have the strongest capital formation markets. We have the strongest derivative markets. And a large degree, it's because it's a regulatory system. And people have confidence that when they put their money into it, they're not going to get cheated. Is there cheating? Is there, are there Bernie Madoffs? Yes. Okay. But th that's rare and people still have confidence. Our markets just survived the, the, the pandemic, the disruption and, and the volatility caused by worldwide shutdown. And people have confidence in the U.S. market and the U.S. system, and it's because of our regulations. And our regulations are designed to protect investors. They're not designed to protect the intermediaries. They're designed to protect investors. If you look at the entities in our markets today, the largest entities, exchanges, centralized exchanges on our market, CME and Intercontinental, CME was a disruptor. CME 
go back 30 years ago, CME was a, was a, was a market that was trading hogs. Okay. And what did they do? They innovated. They traded financial products and they, they demanded regulation. They were one of the entities that supported the, the expansion of the CFTC's jurisdiction into financial commodities in 74 because they wanted the imprimatur and they wanted the stamp of regulation and confidence that that brings. Uh, Intercontinental Exchange, Jeff Sprecher started that as a, as a, as an unregulated exchange to trading natural gas swaps, uh, in, in the manner that I was describing in an unregulated market. And because of the concerns about the, the, uh, integrity and, and the acceptance of an unregulated market, they decided they would go the regulated route and they supported the regulation of their markets. They were operating an unregulated market and ICE under leadership of Jeff Sprecher said, we're, we want to do regulation and look, Look where they are now. They own the New York Stock Exchange. So they and CME were both disruptors in their days, but they went the regulated route. I really believe that the entities in this market who want to succeed and who will succeed in being in, in adopting all these wonderful innovations and bringing it to American consumers and American businesses are the ones who are going to do it and figure out how to do it the regulated way, not the ones who are going to run to the most accommodating offshore jurisdiction uh, that has no regulatory system. So I, I, I think that is the way to go. And that's the path to success. And it also sounds like you think going the anonymous route won't work because uh, institutions will want to uh, trade on something that has clear legality. Yeah, absolutely. The, the, other, the other factor is that, that we, the interaction between these platforms and the traditional platforms we need to know, the CFTC needs to know who is trading on these platforms. The, there, there's, there's, there is transparency. The blockchain is wonderful on transparency, but it's, but it's pseudonymous. It's not, you don't know who is doing it. You just know which string of bits there is. Okay. So the interaction with our regulated markets, we're going to have, we need to know who's doing that type of trading, crypto trading. Uh, whether somebody has a large position, I mean, you can't have like in, in our markets, you know, there's position limits on oil, there's position limits on a lot of hard commodities. We're, we, we need to know who is in these markets. So for both the legal certainty reason, the institutions aren't going to come in, I believe, until legal certainty is solved. Plus, there's going to be have to be some acceptance of some degree of, of, of CFTC um, um, market uh, ability to know the identities of the traders in, in these markets that, affect, that that have could have an impact on key commodities. We have to know who's trading oil. We have to know who's trading cotton or wheat to ensure the integrity of these markets for American businesses. All right. So um, we could spend so much more time talking about DeFi because I did have additional questions. But um, before we go, we do have to also cover the Bitcoin ETF. The Bitcoin community and the wider crypto community have been waiting for a Bitcoin ETF for some time. SEC Commissioner Hester Peirce recently said that a Bitcoin ETF should have been approved a long time ago and that its rejection uh, previously shows a double standard being applied to crypto. And additionally, former CFTC chairman Timothy Massad said that he believed a Bitcoin ETF would be good for investors and regulators because it could improve the trading integrity on crypto exchanges. What do you think about Commissioner Purse's and former chairman Massad's remarks? Well, I, I would just say we made a determination. The CFTC made a determination back in 2000 and uh, maybe Brian will correct me if I'm wrong on the year 2016, I think, to permit the Bitcoin futures contract. Um, uh, with a number of conditions regarding um, the uh, 
uh, integrity of the spot market in which those those prices were based. So we made a determination that under our regulations, under the standard in the Commodity Exchange Act, that the contract was not susceptible to manipulation. I fully defer to the SEC on whether the standard that they're using for whether there's sufficient integrity under the the, the spot price to support um, an exchange traded fund um, is their independent view at this date and time. Um, I, I'm sure they, you know, they they're considering all the appropriate factors. So I would just defer to the SEC on, on, on that on their determination under their statute. Mr. Yeah, Quintens. Laura, I, Thanks. I, I, um, I mean, I agree with with Commissioner Berkovitz that this is something that is squarely within, um, you know, the SEC's purview. Um, I think, you know, talking about the decisions that the CFTC has made with regard to Bitcoin futures may shed some light on how I view about view this generally. But uh, Dan's right. And in, in, I think it was December of 2017, the CFTC allowed or, or did not. Um, did not uh, object to uh, exchanges uh, listing Bitcoin futures contracts under a standard that the indexes to which they settled were not readily susceptible to manipulation. Um, we, in doing so, we didn't place any value judgments on whether or not it was appropriate for market participants to be purchasing um, Bitcoin futures. We were concerned with, is the index readily susceptible to manipulation that this product is going to settle to? And our determination was that it was that it was that it did meet that standard because at least one of those indexes um, was a mathematical formula that took the volume weighted average price across multiple crypto exchanges over five minute periods over an hour and then averaged them, which means that you know, could you manipulate that kind of, you know, index and that construction? Yeah, maybe if you had enough capital, I think with enough time and enough money, anything's manipulable. I think we all know that. But I think we'd also be able to tell exactly who did it and, and where and, and, and find them and hold them accountable for it. So, you know, from my own perspective, I'm proud to have been involved with the listing of Bitcoin futures in a process that did not put a uh, value judgment one way or another was technology neutral and met the standards of our act, which said uh, the index to which it settles is not readily susceptible to manipulation. Um, how that applies to the SEC uh, and whether or not value judgments are part of their process or not, or whether or not, you know, there are concerns um, about a product reflecting, you know, the entire ecosystem, you know, in which a product, you know, the underlying, the underlying contract or product is traded you know, the, the, those I'm, I don't have a lot of familiarity with that, but I do think that an ETF product on a crypto asset solves for a lot of institutional hesitancy where there is probably demand. And it gets to the accounting treatment of this, which kind of reflects back to my days as an investment manager, because I think in your conversation with um, uh, Congressman Emmer, you talked about uh, these sitting on balance sheets as intangible assets which means they can never be written up and they are usually, and they are regularly tested for impairment, which means that if they trade below the purchase price, they are, they, they are negatively impaired. So there's no upside from an income statement or a balance sheet perspective in um, maintaining, you know, uh, a crypto asset itself on your balance sheet. But if you gain that exposure through an ETF, it becomes a, 
security, which is mark to market in real time, and you don't have to worry about the custody issues. So there is there are broad implications for this. And I hear about demand all the time. And given that it is a commodity on which future contracts are already listed, um, you know, I, I can't understand, but also nor speak to uh, the, the hesitancy at our sister agency. That's interesting. Yeah, I uh, have raised that issue about the accounting a few times. And this has affected, obviously, companies like Tesla when they're reporting their earnings uh, because they do hold Bitcoin on their balance sheet. And um, I do find it fascinating because, uh, you know, I'm just speaking as a journalist, but to me, it doesn't really make sense. Um, so I do, yeah, find that interesting. And I like that idea that a Bitcoin ETF could resolve those accounting issues for corporations that are interested in getting exposure to Bitcoin in their treasuries. Um, all right. Well, this has been such a fascinating discussion. I didn't even get to, I, I don't know, some huge percentage of my questions. So we'll have to have you um, back. Um, in the meantime, where can people learn more about each of you and the CFTC? Uh, CFTC.gov. Right, Dan. I think both of our both of our biographies are up there. All of our speeches, um, statements, uh, you know, uh, um, testimony to the extent we've given it, um, articles. uh, You know, the the press office um, uh, does does press releases. um, But uh, but that's a great resource if you want to learn more about us and our philosophies and how we think about the space. And why don't you each give your Twitter handles as well? Uh, It's uh, it's CFTC Quintens. I think I'm the same. <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, You're CFTC Quintens too? Oh my gosh. Yeah, that's, Berkowitz, uh, yeah, Berkowitz, <laughs> right, right, right. Same, okay. same thing. And dberkowitz at cftc.gov. No, I, I really, I do want to engage in the dialogue. I really believe in, in openness and public participation. And feel free to contact me or my office. Um, I'm happy, happy to discuss these issues with uh, the folks out there. They're important issues. Great. All right. Well, thank you both so much for coming on Unchained. Thank you, Laura. Appreciate it. Thank you, Laura. Thanks a lot. Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about Commissioners Dan Berkovitz and Brian Quintens, check out the show notes for this episode. Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Anthony Yoon, Daniel Ness, and Mark Murdoch. Thanks for listening. 